Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Thirdly, I want to give a huge shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Athlete Concepts. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation educational material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, Be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. Hey guys, just before I introduce today's guest, I want to bring it to your awareness that the Irish Strength Institute will be hosting their annual symposium on the 28th and 29th of July at the Grand Hotel in Malahide in Dublin, Ireland. Now the lineup that the ISI team put together for this symposium is absolutely outstanding. Some of the speakers that will be presenting at the symposium will be Dr. Eric Serrano, Dr. Ken Kanakin, the founder of the Swiss Conference, Victoria Felker, Alexandro Ferretti, as well as legendary coach Ismen Javor, yes, the godfather of barbell complexes as well as a host of other outstanding speakers that you can find out about when you go to the registration page. Now, as listeners of this podcast, the ISI is offering you guys a 50 euro discount when you register for the event. The link along with the discount code and all of the event details will be linked up in the show notes. Thanks, guys. Sports performance consultant James Smith from Global Sports Concepts is back on with me for his monthly interview on the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. We were meant to discuss about physical preparation for military operations, but we ended up having an incredible conversation on the importance of desegregating sports preparation, and we also revisited the topic of psychological preparation. 
As always, this was another excellent episode with James. This is definitely another one of my favourite episodes to date, and I hope you guys really enjoy it. James Smith, as always, pleasure to have you come back onto the podcast, and thanks for your patience. Just for the the listeners, my laptop decided to shit the bed, which is done previously on other podcasts. There was one podcast I had with Milad Janovic, and I cut out four times. <laughs> but I, I, I know what actually happened that time. It was because I had like this, I had a external key, like plugged in, and there was some sort of virus on it. And like, cause, because like ever since that, like as long as I never put that key in my laptop, it never drank again. But I was, it was probably because I was downloading something there when we rang. Anyway, and it was clean download, just in case the listeners are wondering, not nothing bad. Um, but thanks for thanks for hanging online there. Give me a few minutes to reboot. So, I suppose before we get into today's topic, how are you keeping? Doing well. Just got back from a consulting trip. I spent half a day with an NFL head coach and his coordinators and position coaches discussing the governing dynamics. Very well received. And I'm thinking since, since last month we i've made it public that raymond verheyen the director of the world football academy he has invited me to come spend a week at the world football academy pro course in valencia spain Mm. and so i'll I'll be presenting almost every day of the week to his to the pro courses to, to, to the pro coaches who will be attending that that conference that'll be june i think it's the third through the ninth that that week somewhere in there so that should be very good because every attending professional coach there has been encouraged to buy my book and so therefore they'll have some familiarity when i'm presenting on the various topics so you'll be happy to know my uh my mother goes to me yesterday she goes would you like some new runners for your birthday and i was like no i want an amazon voucher for amazon.com not not (laughs) not not the uk one because i can't buy your book for that so I was like, there's two books that, well, sorry, I said, there's one real, one main book I want to get, and I was like, and it's, it's an expensive one, so I was like, get me a voucher so I can finally get this book, because the guy who, who wrote it is like, going to kill me if I don't get this book soon. Um, but, uh, well, thank, thank, thank you, Mrs. Bork. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, mother. So, <laughs> but uh, I was going to say, that's great. Yeah, I see, the, I got the email um, that you sent out to the members about that, about the uh, upcoming uh, speaking, yep. speaking engagement, Raymond, and it, that will be... Will it be around any particular topic within the government dynamics, or is it just going to be like a big, a big presentation on the whole summary be, of the book? Be, be, because I'm going to be, I'll be speaking on the first day, giving a overview for the week, and then throughout almost every day of the week, I'll be leading various types of groups that mm. Raymond has set up. Leadership mentor. Those these are the titles. And then on the final day, I will present on my perspective on how the week went and what was covered and how well the information was assimilated. And so given the, given the multiple opportunities, I should be able to speak on most of the governing dynamics. And because the, the way that I cover them in consults is I, I offer my consults apart from single one-offs in four and eight week packages i'm speaking specifically regarding the distance consulting where i'm doing it in a format such as this or over the phone and i've i've consolidated the 
in total, there's 13 that I identify. If you separate them all into their individual parts and I've consolidated those into groupings of eight, in which case eight one hour sessions allows me to provide a reasonable overview and obviously, if it's condensed down into four, it's, it's much more compressed, which is certainly not as advisable. However, I, I present the different options because everyone has a different financial situation. But the because the, the because the topics are so comprehensive, which you'll see when you when you get the book, it is it's very conducive to just keep coming. For example, I'm working with a rugby regional director and. We're now in his second round of eight consultations in which we go back from the beginning and I just go deeper into each yeah. topic. And then it's simply a matter of the, you know, the clients, the client's aptitude and determination to, that then dictates how well they assimilate the information. And so that, that sort of goes without saying. Yeah, it's funny you say that because something that, well, I've I've known about this or or have thought about this over the last few years, but uh, like we often talk about like rereading books, but then I start to meet people who like who retook courses, and like I was, I was like I never really thought about doing that. I was like I know people who like took the same course multiple times because of just so much information on it, and so I can only imagine that there will be individuals saying that, "Fuck, I did those eight rounds, but I need to go rounds again, like because that was a lot." Because obviously there is a hell of a lot covered in the Govern Dynamics, but uh, that's fantastic. That's great. So you had a. You had a, a good time um, consulting with the coaches in the NFL uh, club, and and like so, you were saying that they they received the message well, and um in in terms of like in terms of that, like what were the type of questions asked or feedback given, and um when when you go do stuff like that, do you then follow up with them in terms of is there like like follow up phone consultations that go on with the head coach or individuals within that team? So. In this particular organization, I'd already consulted for the head coach on more than one occasion. Okay. And so he had he had some familiarity with respect to what I could offer, and he was very receptive, which is obviously great. And so he set this up where I would speak with his whole staff. And the it, there was some very good uh, dialogue and exchanges that the time – had me moving along pretty well because I did not have all day. It was a half a day. And we ultimately, ultimately I was unable to finish because the room that we were in at this particular hotel, we ended up losing, losing the opportunity to, we lost the time on the room. And so, so they'll be bringing me back out shortly to conclude on what I was not able to finish. And yes, there was follow-up to answer your question and I'm I'm waiting to see. I'll I'll definitely have ongoing relationship with the head coach in the organization as to whether coordinators, position coaches. That just remains to be seen. This you know this just happened, but everybody's got my information, so we'll see. The it's always it's always a productive result because as you're now familiar with the differential that separates the bulk of what I have to offer and what is actually happening and what is consistent in various realms of coaching education, the differential is here fairly comes. substantial. Uh, I thought you were going to say the magic word. Here it comes. Here comes the word. 
Which one's that? Begins with a K, ends in an E. A K. And ends in an E. I am spelling that right. Yeah, I am. Your favorite word. My favorite word begins with a K. I'm drawing a blank. And ends with an E. You'll get it. You'll say it in this podcast. Okay, Tink, it'll come back Tink, to me. Tink David Deutsch's famous quote in the front of your book. Ah, knowledge. Well, yeah. so the, the, the knowledge differential. Yes. And so, be, so because of that, you're, it's, it's essentially it's the same thing that I open up most of my consultations with is that I, I'm going, inevitably, I'm going to be challenging your beliefs. It's, it's going to happen today when we talk about special operations. I, some percentage of listeners probably those more connected to the special operations community, though maybe not their beliefs will be challenged invariably. Yeah. And when that happens and we're, we're presented with an interesting situation, you, you learn a, a lot about someone when a belief is challenged, you, you learn the extent to which they're committed to objectivity. Yeah the extent to which they're willing to be and remain open-minded. And, and ultimately what this means is the extent to which they're interested in progress. Because the less, rather, the more resistant you are to your own beliefs, knowledge, etc., being challenged the less susceptible you are to advancing. Yeah. It's the reason why, as Deutsch describes the difference between static and dynamic societies, the differences are very much premised in that set of criteria, the extent to which criticism is fostered, the extent to which creative thinking is fostered, the extent to which fallibility is recognized and all, mm -hmm. and the absence of those is what renders cultures that are slow to progress, and in the case of you know historical societies, ones that that never made it. And we see microcosms of this happening in all sorts of organizational structure, and we'll be speaking about some of that today. So, just off that, we always do this. We always go off a little bit or digress, but it's always great because. One, it's my podcast. We can talk about whatever we want. And uh, two, usually the feedback I always get people is, oh, I love your conversations with James. Like They just go everywhere and they're just amazing. So people seem to like when we digress. But uh, you're just saying there about uh, like societies that die off and static ones. Like I have read in like in, in some certain literature. Now, I haven't looked deeply into the research of it. But like there is like apparently archaeological like findings in terms of like buildings that were built and even like skeletons like so they looked at like the size of the skulls and the brains but, like people like had bigger brains we have now and then like the stuff they're able to do we still don't know how but yet they seem to die out so it's kind of like they seem to be more, nearly more intelligent than us so it's kind of like the it's like a paradox it's like where, what happens to them? where do they go maybe they left the planet maybe they're better that smart i don't know you know the the existential crisis that our you know on historical record you know who knows you know these every X amount of millennia, these asteroid hits, you know, one of them 65 million years ago wipes out the bulk of the dinosaurs. Another, you know, you have these other related events in which the, the superheating from asteroids melts glacial shelves 
and the immense flooding wipes out the bulk of our continents, life forms, you know, these things happening throughout the historical record. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting getting a deeper insight into the reasons, you know, even homo sapiens were the current evolutionary biology points out just one of a multitude of different. Yeah. Human species that, that you know, we happen to be the ones that made it. And uh, according to uh, Harari's book, he said there were seven species at one time. On, on, like in terms of that's right, yeah. And then even and then even from a you know a geological time scale, Homo sapiens have only been around a blip in compared to even Homo erectus, approximately two million years, yeah. and Homo sapiens maybe two hundred thousand, maybe a hundred thousand, so a small percentage of even the, the predecessors. So. So it's very helpful for perspective. This is an example of gaining a global perspective in order to have a deeper appreciation of any more acute scenario. And as it regards to circle back to the, the cultures, the, the same take the, the, the Greek nation of Sparta, mm. which <clears throat> excuse me, right. which every you know, every realm of machismo culture as it could pertain to sport or otherwise looks to derive utility from what we can learn from the Spartan culture. I, I included quotes from a fantastic book written by Stephen Pressfield. Gates of Fire. The, the Gates of Fire. I included quotes from that in the governing dynamics. Yeah. So I, I'm no exception. However... Sparta was a static society. Yeah. And in the grand scheme, <clears throat> pardon me. You're right. It did not last very long in compared to a historical comparison to uh, other cultures that yeah. did. Yeah. And it's important to understand the reasons why. So as admirable as the discipline and the singular, at least as far as the history books demonstrate, the singular objective to a war-fighting culture based in reason and simplicity and minimal, you know, no more communication verbal than necessary, all of these components of what they deemed efficiency and any amount of utility that can be derived for similar related purposes from a global perspective we have to also recognize why did that society fail and the reason why it and most other societies apart from those that were simply subject to some existential crisis of you know just everyone was wiped out for reasons apart from cultural bedrock is that they all share something very similar in common right up to this very day in one of the more recent organizations that a close friend of mine points out in his in his speaking is there are, I don't know I don't know the your familiarity in your region of the world Robbie there was a there was a video rental company called Blockbuster yeah we had those yeah, we had blockbusters we had extra vision we used to have those Yep. And what happened, Blockbuster was one of these examples that was resistant to, at least 
on a public perspective. I, I cannot speak to what was going on behind the scenes, but in public record, they were resistant to the changing times in you know these video cassettes shifting to DVDs, et cetera, yeah. and they, they ultimately disappeared yeah. because of their resistance to progress. And so we, so that's sort of an easy example of a relatively well-known company that is no more as a result of their failure to, to progress and the reason why. And then what we have to come back to, for instance, in the case of military or sport, is the reason why resistance to criticism can survive and it's it's in any scenario in which this medium of tradecraft are people these adaptive mechanisms which you've heard me discuss many times already this is an example of how you can have skill sets intrinsic to individuals that can all that can allow for continued performance to a certain degree, despite the fact that there's a pretty heavy and palpable resistance to criticism. And so the, the way that we have to assume a perspective on this that makes sense, because someone might say, wait a minute, James, you just described a civil, a, a community such as Sparta that did not last Ultimately, because it was functioning more as a static versus a dynamic society, this is a society of people. Here you are saying that people are an adaptive mechanism that can compensate for dysfunctional supervisory constraints. So on the one hand, you're saying a static society doesn't make it. On the other, you're saying, but sports can make it or the military can make it. And this is where I have to point out that we cannot adopt an anthropocentric worldview specifically with respect to the duration of a human life. We have to maintain, for example, a geological perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I say, even though, you know, you and I now, Robbie, we could talk about the history of rugby and it exceeds the, the length of a human life. So it seems a long time ago when we talk about the late 1800s. Yeah. It's, it seems, uh, right? So yeah. it, it, it's, it, it's all relative to what our perspective is. Exactly. But in, the, in, the, in a geological time scale, this hundreds some odd years, it, it doesn't even register, right? And so, th so that's the type of thinking that we that certainly I want to encourage everyone listening to adopt because it's quite myopic to constrain one's perspective to you know not even the 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 duration of a human life but the duration of a career or the the duration of a career at a particular organization yeah yeah it's it's funny you mention that because I only had the thought the other day, and this goes back to our, our discussion about like how much of an embryo organized sport is, and I was just like I was just thinking to myself in the apartment the other day I was like, like I was like, the first rugby world cup was played in nineteen eighty seven like that was the year that's how, how much of an infancy rugby sure it only went professional sure. in nineteen five, 
And then that's I, right. And then I was like, the Super Bowl, the first one was 1966, and it was just, right. yeah, that too. And I was just like, or, like th- this goes back to because I've been having this conversation the last year with people about injuries in sport. People are going, oh, nobody in sport should have injuries. I'm like, sport is a novelty to the human organism, like in, in terms of its demands, like it, it like. Like, at no time in human history has the demands that have been put on current, like, elite-level performers ever been put on their, like... Because you get these people going, oh, like, paleo people were, like, athletes. When they say that thing, they go for tendons or whatever. Would you... Like, if you brought someone from paleo there now, they'd be, like, conserving a lot of energy. And (laughs) they wouldn't be out there, like, training three times a day or... Like, you know, can you imagine someone from Payne there going to a CrossFit box and then training a few times a day? They'd be like, you're out of your fucking mind. I'm not, I'm not gaining, <laughs> I'm not gaining procreation from this uh, safety or food. So it's just like, and we're still hardwired for survival. So you're going to get all these people. Now, again, don't, I, I think I said this our last month. Don't get me mis- I'm not saying that we should not try to physically prepare athletes to the best of our capabilities. Um, and then using the, you know an objective logical model on that, I'm just saying when people turn around and say, "Oh, this injury should never happen," I'm like, "Well, we're putting the human organism in an environment that's never really that's adap- absolutely not adapted yet, and we're doing a shitty job of thinking that we're getting adapted for this environment." It it is an important criticism regarding the injuries, however, because all that said, where you rightfully point out the distinction between the the load concentrations, intensities, etc., that are associated with modern day sport compared to historical record of what the sort of corporate average rigors were associated physically with survival and and selection and procreation. We do, we do have to criticize because what is normalized in particularly in sport preseason training what is normalized culturally society is the volume of injury. Yeah. And that must be criticized. Absolutely. I made a Absolutely. Recent, Absolutely. Yeah. I made a recent analogy, uh, basically particularly, but not excluded, not, not to the exclusion of others, particularly non-contact injury and including also any type of contact injury it must be viewed the the biggest problem robbie is that it's not viewed approximate to dysfunctions in almost any other domain Mm -hmm. so the analogy that i gave was think about pipes that are leaking when the water i was just about to say it's either going to be the plumbing analogy or the doctor one where like the feedback is like that's because you you all of a sudden the feedback is instantaneous you cut a wrong pipe or a wrong artery or nerve it's like, oh shit, but you can get away with a lot of crap with an athlete for a while. Well, well even more, more, an, a more accurate analogy is pipes that leak when the water's not running is approximate to injuries that occur when contact is not occurring. I get you. I get you. Because you always have a certain amount of water pressure available in the pipes even when the water's not running. That's what allows when you open a valve, you have flowing water. Yeah. And so the... The point is, when when pipes leak, regardless of whether the water's running or not, it demands an, an immediate investigation. Mm-hmm. There's no, I mean, think about it. Let's continue with the analogy and extrapolate what happens in sports. You have X amount of injuries occur, 
and the general consensus is, ah, what are you going to do? It's sport. They're bigger, stronger, faster. Just shit happens. It goes with the territory. But imagine that happening in the plumbing context. Yeah, yeah. Ah, the pipes are leaving, leaking again. Ah, shit happens. It's water. Or, or just, it's gra- it's or gravity. you just, 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 just throw some tape on it. Imagine like there's a pipe in a restaurant and it's leaking. I just put some tape on. That's what people do with the body. My knee. I would just tape up his knee. Your ankle would be grand. Yes. True. True indeed. Although that's a separate conversation of you know the the way in which these issues are are dealt with prophylactically or medically, et cetera. The it just on face value, it's the it's first getting past the cultural societal intellectual dysfunction of the way that it's considered and so if, if you go through all these mechanical scenarios and it's ah you know the rivets work themselves off and your tire you know the wheel separated from the car again driving to work ah what are you going to do it's driving it's hard road conditions these things happen yeah. you know if if this was the mindset then you know leaking roofs and faulty plumbing and cars breaking down and just all these problems that would arise mechanically would have disastrous consequences yet this is this is exactly what's happening and has been in sport and on the whole no red flags to this day are being raised outside of little minority circles in which more knowledgeable people are beginning to scratch their head and having similar conversations that this yeah. this has to be investigated absolutely yeah. and I, I, I uh, like I think but to make my point clear is that I am no way and, and you know this and I think people are noticed too who have heard me say this before I'm in no way saying that injuries are normal. What I'm saying is they make sense given the fact that the, the amount of sport practice that's going on nowadays with the lack of preparation for the athletes, with, with the with the very poor preparation that athletes are receiving in terms of management of volumes and intensities and being um, being prepared adequately for the environments that they're actually going to perform in, like the injuries make complete sense, but they, they shouldn't be having and they should be criticized, absolutely. So that's the point I'm trying to make when people are like they should never have it. I'm like, but they should because of the like the shittiness that's going on within the profession. It makes sense. Like they shouldn't have them. Well it's and it's important that everyone listening understands when you use the word profession, that has to do the work of accounting for every facet of coaching that is segregated. It's because one could easily derive from what you said, Robbie. Ah, right. Athletes have to be more effectively prepared for these, whatever, three a day practices. That's the difference is they're not prepared well enough. What that implies is that those three a day or whatever it is practices, it, it implies that that is some static, unchanging, separate entity. Mm. And, and that's a huge problem because – the, the the alternative standpoint of this is, you know, according to my argument, eliminate every physical preparation coach, integrate the sport preparatory engineering, yeah. which which now reforms the actual sport practice, yeah. so yeah. as to account for the for what the most cutting edge edge knowledge of what is appropriate in terms of loading, and so the, this is very important. The 
the culture of sport, I mean, I can attest to this. We spoke some about this offline just now and, and, and because all I do is consult, I'm constantly having to work to get this point across because it's just effectively Robbie, what the scenario is in sport and military is very much approximate to if we were to roll back the clock in the U S different parts of the world have different historical periods of time in which this was true in your country. You could think about the division of the nation based upon the, the, the IRA and the associated conflicts with in American history. You go back to the atrocities of the, the settlers and committing against the native Americans. Then you go forward to that into the era of slave slavery. You go into South Africa and apartheid and you just go around the world. And they ha- in, in some cases it's currently happening, depending upon where you are in the world issues of whether it's racial or religious or ideological. Obviously there's a lot of the ideological occurring today. Segregation. The, the work that one think of the advocates of integration and we're all the same because these people, they have also always existed. And if you take racial segregation, it's in, in any objective reference frame, I'm not sure that any conclusion apart from the one that it's simply an abomination of the human condition. I'm, I, I don't know that any other objective conclusion could be formed based upon the existence of racial segregation. And we know that throughout history, you've always had more objective minded individuals. So if we use the example of the abomination of racial segregation, and we, we know that there was strong advocates for the cessation of that and that we're all human beings and all that goes along with that. This is somewhat approximate, although, of course, the severity and the implications and the consequences are much, much different. Yeah, yeah. But, but in, in principle, for, for years now, the work that I've done as a consultant in an effort to demonstrate that this process of preparing for the competition must be understood as this unified thing. Yeah. It's all the same thing that only varies in typology. Yep. Th- this has been to this day, Robbie, it really requires work and usually me having to utilize a variety of different analogies before heads start nodding in the room to understand the objective truth of the matter that we could, because currently Robbie, I can, um, I'd be willing to bet money that when you use the word, the profession or the, or the phrase preparing for sport, the bulk of people who would hear that statement would think, ah, preparing for sport physical preparation and that's a mistake yeah what what preparing for sport must include is every facet of sport preparation and so 
We cannot speak about preparing for hurling in any intelligent context without talking about sensory motor, stick handling, ball control. We cannot responsibly talk about hurling preparation without talking about the most specific aspects of hurling preparation and what distinguishes the hurling competitor from the water polo player. Yeah. What the, the problem with physical preparation is it's, is it's, you see much less of a difference between how the water polo player and how the hurler are prepared when they're not actually on the pitch or in the pool. Yeah. This has been the problem from the very beginning that there was this divergence. If from the beginning, the, the knowledge that was already existing, this is my argument, the, if we look, you know, what was happening in physics when professional sport was beginning? So this is around the turn of the century from the 1800s going into the 1900s. Well, we had individuals like Einstein, and Niels Bohr and Max Planck and the, the, the you know quantum physics was beginning at the same time as Einstein was developing general relativity. So we, we had this extraordinarily extraordinary brilliance that was seeking to form grand unified theories in physics. So we had this extraordinary brilliance in physics that was, while the constituents are completely different in principle, the knowledge was already amassed to attempt to unify yeah. di divergent theories. Yeah. This, so this is precisely my argument in, in sport, to unify divergent theories and practices of preparation, hence the sport preparatory engineering, which we spoke about last month. If only individuals like-minded, because, because what did I do, Robbie? I'm very much a fan and an advocate and an enthusiast and an actual a student of physics and mathematics. And this is ultimately what contributed to, to me developing this awareness from the very beginning. Because what, what you have to understand, you know, you, you'll be getting the book soon. So it was published at the end of 2016, but I was having these arguments with people starting in 2004 or so, when I first started coaching. And the only reason that I had that awareness of this segregation of sport coach, strength coach, physio, was I was immediately aware of this nonsensical segregation and the fact that most sport coaches know very little about physiotherapy and very little about the most types of preparation that are apart from the most specific and how most physios know very little about sport tactics and how most physical preparation coaches know very little about physio and sport tactics and technique. And it's only minority populations that do. And the, the reason brings us back to the lack of unifying education. There is nothing approximate to medical school or law school in sport. 
which is why you can put sport coaches, strength coaches, and physios in the same room. And once they get past speaking about the most surface level constituents of each of their domains, they soon arrive at a level of discussion they're just not qualified to have because none of them know enough about what the other is talking about. Whereas the divergence in, I've given this analogy in other formats people might be familiar with, take an OBGYN, an internal medicine specialist, and a neurosurgeon. These are extraordinarily different specialty fields in medicine. Take criminal law practice, divorce law, and commercial real estate law. Very divergent specialty practices in law. Similarly, we can either take sport coach, strength coach, physio, or we could simply take three different types of sport coaches, hurling, water polo, and basketball. Very divergent types of sport coaching. Now, how do we compare and contrast contrast these domains? These divergent medical specialties are unified on the basis of they all went to medical school. These divergent law practices in their specialty domains are all unified on the basis of they all are products of law school. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the sport coaches in the NBA hurling or water polo, or whether it's physios, strength coaches, and sport coaches, almost none of them even have access to the concept of something approximate to medical school or law school. This is the reason I wrote the governing dynamics, that it, that it might serve as a, an actual set of curricula for something approximate in sport. If you were to simply look at it as sport university and anyone who's an operating in the same way, I'm using all these, any type of medical doctor, any type of lawyer, any type of sport professional. So now every physio, every sport coach, of course, in my argument is there strength coaches do not exist. Everyone is a product of this sport school who only after which performs a residency, Mm. right? So now, even though you've tended towards physio and say, I've tended towards the technical coaching of ice hockey players, we're unified in our basic general understanding. So even though the version of my residency was quite different from yours, when we come together now and here we are in that same room and I'm more of this technical sport coach and you're a physio, we're able to have deep conversation about the substrates of each, the relationships, how they work together, how they're synergized in ways that almost no sport coach, physio, strength coach is capable of doing this day and age unless they take it upon themselves to self-educate. Yeah. 
to learn more about the other profession. But the thing is, it's more than that. It's more than a unification. It's more than the uh, a hypothetical notion of, oh, well, we should just sport coach, strength coach, and physio should procreate in the offspring is <laughs> what James is talking about. And that's that's not what I'm saying. It's It's more than simply learning more about each other's profession. It's more than that. Because as you know, Robbie, we can criticize for a long time the dysfunctions of each profession. So, so we're not solving much by simply putting them all together. Mm. We have to evolve and amend and correct and reformat in addition to unify. And so this is what is principally important to understand in the way that, if you like, we can segue this into the special operations context is the disunity, the falsity, the divergence between modes of selecting for special operations candidates and the professional role of the special operator. Yeah, and you touched, you touched on that in the lecture that, that I'm referencing for the special operations. Continue, this, this is, this is how I'm really enjoying this. Do, do you want me to go into the special operations? Well, actually, just uh, just something, just while... Well, uh, yeah, we'll go into that, but just a few things I want to take away from that. So, like, there's times where you come up with analogies, and I'm like, I love that analogy, because I remember when we, this was actually before we started doing a monthly podcast in a previous interview, where you told, again, and we actually talked about this earlier, in terms of the instant feedback that, like, a plumber or a surgeon gets, and, like, the way that a physical yeah. preparation coach can continually damage an athlete and not know for ages, like, in no other profession really can that happen. So, like, I love when you give, like, these, like, kind of analogies because it just – see, the way I can remember that, like, you know, because there is the, – obviously, within skill acquisition, there's this thing about analogies and kind of get people to retain retain information and retain a skill. But the, the segregation one you just used there, I think, is per- so perfect. It was funny because I was going to crack a joke. I was going to say, so basically you're telling us you're the sport equivalent of Martin Luther King. <laughs> you're, trying, you're trying to get rid of segregation. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, well, yeah, I, I, as, I, as I indicated, I wouldn't want anyone to, to think that I'm conflating the two because obviously the implications of racial yeah, segne- yeah. segregation are much more severe and not to be compared. But in, yes, in principle, yes, the it's because uh, it, even there, you, I don't know if you noticed, Rob, because it typically happens at an unconscious level, because what you just said was the how these mistakes can be made in physical preparation. Which, which shows the lack of unification that's occurred in your mind because the same leeway is 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 granted to every sport coach. Yeah. Ev- uh, every physio. nonsensical yeah. – uh, exactly right. Every nonsensical administration of work. If we – it's something that I asked the NFL coaches who I consulted with just a few days ago. If we ask everyone to constrain themselves against using jargon, Mm -hmm. you are inevitably required to do more explaining. As soon as I cannot use jargon, because jargon is, is, it is helpful because you could, one jargon word, one slang word can do the work for many other words. And when you understand that, when we talk about, you know, the jargon of hurling versus the jargon of rugby versus the jargon of the NBA, 
there is a utility function. And when you are indoctrinated to those cultures, you understand what the jargon means and it economizes communication because this one word is doing the work of a larger paragraph. But if you prohibit yourself from utilizing jargon, you're on your way towards unifying. So for example, if we get rid of all the jargon of sport preparation and use only the language of say classical mechanics. Yeah. So it's basically everything is a version of kinetics, kinematics. We're speaking about work, power, momentum, acceleration, torque, angular velocity, et cetera. Now we, we are taking steps towards unifying. Yeah. Because every physio, the way we unify, how do we think similarly? And this is the way that I've done it in explaining the sport preparatory engineering. How do we unify in the language of physical interactions and motions How do we unify the domains of sport, coach, strength, coach, physio? Well, the answer is in the language of motion. Yeah. Because because that which is structurally, mechanically, neuromuscularly consequential is, by definition, a, a factor of motion. So there's no more jargon. It's simply how does the concepts of work, acceleration, stress in the mechanical sense, mechanical stress, structural stress, torque. So force, quantities of force, quantities of motion, displacement, acceleration, et cetera. This is how we quantify. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's the subtleties of some hands-on petrissage, soft tissue manipulation of the physio or a technical instruction on the rugby pitch or something done with a barbell. All of it is explainable in the language of force and motion. Yes, yes. And, And quantifiable. So this is what... You're going to see it soon when you get the book. This is what I. This is why I, I lean so heavily on classical mechanics as it underpins biomechanics. There's no biomechanics without classical mechanics, and this is a step towards people understanding how to unify what is fiercely segregated, and as a result, the divisions that result inhibit communication and even if there's communication on the surface level this is not to be thought of as a solution for a lack of understanding of a unified mode of engineering all that must be done as opposed to these separate cells engineering their own agendas so we 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 begin by everyone learning how to communicate in the same language. language yes yeah it, it, it reminds me too, I, I mentioned this in a previous podcast about Jock Fresco from the Venus Project and, and he, was, he was talking about how inefficient our languages are because there's such, again, you go back to slang and different languages and he was like, in the future, everyone should just be communicating through maths. 
because he's like it's a, well, it's, it's a unified it's a unified language and he, he gave the example of engineers he's like an engineer in one country to an engineer in another country they speak the same language because they're speaking for engineering he's like there's no there's no miscommunication there and he says that can't be because if you're a german engineer and i'm a whatever japanese or french engineer we're building a bridge and we get something wrong in miscommunication he's like it's a disaster so he's like engineering has to be like so like spot on the language like you you're gonna see that mentioned a lot in the book when you when you get it the the this this unifying element of the mathematics that has in all disciplines that are heavily influenced by the hardest of all sciences which it is is the reason why it is so heavily implicated in the sport preparatory engineering that the it's only in mathematics where the concept of a proof is actually proven what is stated. And the reason why is because the axioms that form the basis of which proofs are instantiated, particularly logical axioms, while in and of themselves they are assumptions. However, what's asked to be assumed is what is then self-consistent and the more rigorous the proof, the more reliable it is proving the truth of the argument. This is the only discipline intellectually in which concepts can be proved. Yeah. And it's, it's important to understand this because colloquially we throw around the words proof, you know, whether it's in the court of law or casually, you know, prove it. That's true. Oh, that's not true. You got to prove it. But I've been doing it for thirty years. It's it's there's proof. <laughs> yes, and so this is very important. That as soon as you branch away from mathematics, now all you can do is confirm predictions or probab- to yeah, probabilities to varying degrees of accuracy. Yeah, that's all you can do. Yeah. I mean, even even Newton Newton's laws of motion. Yeah, cannot be cannot be proven. They they only they they only go as far as um, well they can't go any further in, in terms of the quantum field they don't have any they don't they don't well, fit e- a hole there yeah even beyond that the fact that it's not pure mathematics is why they cannot be proven all they can do, be done which of course has been done and the reason why they're so relevant in every absolutely every facet of engineering. And aeronautics and even a lot of aerospace, you know, Newton's laws used to project the motion of rockets and their trajectories, et cetera. The reason why is because they've been confirmed to such high degrees of accuracy. Mm-hmm. But that but but that must be distinguished from proven yeah. in the in the way that mathematics can be. And the the point here, Robbie, the reason why I'm explaining this is that. The reason, for example, why Newton's laws of motion are accurate to such high levels is because of the way they are implicated by mathematics. Mm-hmm. It, theoretical physics in general is so heavily – the it, there's a very fine line that separates various aspects of abstract math – well, mathematics in and of itself is abstract. There's a fine line that separates – mathematics and theoretical physics due to the influence and the more a subject matter is influenced by mathematics the more quantitative it is yeah 
So this, hence my argument for the sport preparatory engineering, because it's taking a quantitative approach to every aspect of simply preparing for competition. And the more quantitative you are, the more reliably you can predict. Is it is it just a matter of time, James? Because what, what's going to my mind there, you, and this this is another great thing you just mentioned. It's, it's, it's just, like you mentioned this like ages ago in our talk. Since, but like so, like sports preparation isn't it's 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 a it's a fetus. It's an embryo in comparison to other sciences, and even just in comparison to like humans in general. But like just when you were talking about Einstein in the early part of the twentieth century unifying physics like are we are we kind of not within that right now are we are we are we basically in like 18th century physics right now and it's only a matter of time say in the later part of the 21st century going into maybe 22nd century like we'll, we'll, we'll look back when it's like 2100 going like gee like you know like okay we're standing on the shoulders of giants here but like we've definitely evolved we've really like the segregation's gone there's no physical preparation coaches there's no like it's all like unified is it just a question of time, like, is in Einstein and, and, and like, bringing in u, u, unified theories to physics? Do you think it's just a matter of time? So, basically, you're, you're Einstein right now. You, you realize that. Well, <laughs> I, 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 don't even think it's a, I don't even think it's a question, Robbie. I think it's – if that doesn't happen, that means World War III happened and there's no more humans. It, it, it's, it's, only the, it's only the natural course of events, and the, and the reason why is – as we've discussed already, for for all intents and, and purposes, it depends how we define it. It depends how we define professional sport. As you indicated, you know, rugby becomes professional in 1995, but rugby existed in the late 1800s. So I'll I'll grant sports like rugby and association football and others. I'll grant them. Okay, let's say you know you you began. There was some form of competitions occurring in the late 1800s. So still, we're just over a hundred years yeah. past then. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll grant that. I'll grant it. That's fine. That that ju- whatever 120 years, 130 years is still. It's 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 insignificant on a time scale that exceeds that of a human lifetime. So invariably, there's just no other way to look at it, Robbie, when we use the words, this is the Stone Age, this is the Dark Ages. There's just no argument against that because sport, no matter how much, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I was just very generous in saying, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you, late 1800s, even though what rugby looked like in 1890 was something different from what it looks like in 1990, even though in 1990 it still wasn't professional. Mm. So I, I don't think there's any other way to look at it, Robbie, in terms of the likelihood. And you'll see this in the book. I, I speak about this a lot in the book, that if we look at a perspective, the, the, my closing statement in the book, I ask everyone to, to consider not a, not a couple hundred years, but a, a few thousand years in the same way that we look back, uh, we look back 2000 years when we discuss the school, the Platonic school and Aristotle and Socrates taking the Greeks, for example, 
this is us looking back a little over 2,000 years. Yeah. And so now we have to ask ourselves responsibly if we do not kill each other, which is possible, and we have not already colonized Mars to potentially save the species, if we're still if we still and if we haven't made the world uninhabitable in the year 4018, what will a couple individuals involved in sport such as you and I, what will that conversation consist of? And my conjecture is that they'll look back and as I indicate in the book, if the governing dynamics still exists in some way, shape or form, some record of it, it'll be an elect it'll be electronic. It'll be like on a PDF and stuff. You know I mean? th there'll be that these individuals 2000 years from now will look and they'll say, ah, it was a real mess. Those first hundred years. Sure. There was some achievements and we understand why because of the compensating me mechanism, et cetera, et cetera. And there was this fellow, James Smith, and he he seemed to see further. You're basically you're, you're basically going to end up being their guru. You have the beard for it anyway. That that's all it is, Robbie. <laughs> is some people just see further than others. Yeah, yeah. When those people exist at the same time as others, it, this is another historical event. There's, there's nothing special. It's just uh, some people see further, and it's. It's important, in my judgment, to instill a to instill a set of possibilities that gives everyone the best chance to see further conceptually. Yeah. What what is it that one might be exposed to that would stimulate their own creative processes and contribute to the to the the lowest likelihood of them being institutionalized with myopic or narrow-minded reference frames. Yeah. It seems, you know, you're, you're nodding your head and, and most people we'd like to think are nodding their heads. The problem is, is that most people in sport are institutionalized and narrow-minded in their conception. Yeah, and I think another thing too is that, and I don't know, I don't know if we spoke about this in the past, but I definitely know I've touched on this before with Pat Davidson, and it's like I don't, I, I don't think you will come across anyone once they kind of fully understand the message that you're trying to portray. Disagree, but it's like one of these situations where people go, "I agree, but what are you gonna do?" Because it's just easier for their brain not to have to think hard. So this is what Pat Davidson has to do because. Apparently, thinking hard actually activates like you know survival mechanism in your brain. It's like a threat to your brain to like really have to sit and think hard. That's why people don't like to actually ask themselves different questions like, "Why the fuck am I here? What is life about?" They're just like, "Oh, I'm just gonna have toast this morning and tea." You know, they just don't want to get into any deep well, the, thinking. The, the the thing there, Robbie, you have to be careful. I would not make that generalization. Yeah. Because because what you have to account for is cultural as one example influences that render different sets of circumstances. So I didn't, I didn't listen to, I, I don't know what you're referring to there with what the Davidson said, but what I would not make 
I would not generalize in such a way as to say that the demand to think critically poses some implicit threat because that's dependent upon pre-existent conceptions. Yeah, it's a percent because, perception, yeah. The person's yeah, perception. Because, yeah, because if we can go to enormous populations, statistically significant populations of, let's say, various types of scientists who are who not only welcome, but what actually makes them tick is challenging their worldview. That's the reason they get out of bed in the morning is, is the possibility that their worldview might be turned upside down. Mm. So we have statistically significant portions of, of the human population that look forward to the possibility that they could be proven completely wrong. And the reason why that's something to look forward to is because that means progress is happening. Yeah, but then we get back to this question of certainty versus uncertainty. Because apparently, like, the biggest stresses to the human species, number one, is uncertainty. But then number two is too much certainty in their lives. But if you attack somebody's certainty, again, like a belief system, then you know, that becomes threatening to them. And then this goes back to what you were talking about earlier on, and people become resistant to change. But we know well, that change means evolu- like it's critical for evolution. Well, the thing is, what it goes back to is even something that we talked about in an earlier podcast is psychological preparation. Yeah. Because the less I emotion... Always, I always think about that baby in the car with that episode. Yeah, well, the, the, the less... The more self-regulated an individual is in terms of managing the extent to which emotion plays a role in their perception. Mm. Now, I state that and some neuroscientist or or somewhere else immediately is thinking, wait a minute, it's, it's not so easy as just simply deciding, okay, I'm at a mathematics seminar and I'm just gonna turn off my emotion and then later tonight, I'm having dinner with my significant other, and I'm going to turn on my emotions. This is not what I'm saying. It's that it is a skill, Robbie. It's a psychological skill to self-regulate. So while unlike, for example, a sociopath, where there's not going to be an instance where an individual can zero the emotional content the emotional contribution of their perception, it is attainable and it is a skill to reduce. Mm -hmm. And this is what is principally important because individuals who have developed this skill and or individuals who are just innately more analytical in their perception, apart from sociopaths or psychopaths, say, who actually lack the ability to empathize. They cannot do it. I'm referring to people who either through training or implicitly just tend towards more of an objective analytical reference frame as opposed to an emotionally dynamic one. These are the individuals who are by definition most reasonable. And we hear that in dialogue and conversation. If you just listen to someone's if you just listen to the tone of voice, yeah. 
in the in the course of disagreement, you get a sense of who's more objective. And this is critically important when we talk about perception and the degree or the willingness that one is to be challenged intellectually and how receptive they are to that has it's a multivariate process no doubt however what we must add to this discussion is the degree to which at the at the base level how well each individual is psychologically prepared yeah because this is the apex and in the context of this type of discussion, it is central to its outcome. The degree to which individuals, because think about a word, Robbie, the, the word belief, what it shares in common with trust, what it shares in common with faith and a few others is accepting on the basis of insufficient evidence. And here's where we must draw the distinction because there's other forms of this as well. When we, when we talk about a scientific theory, a scientific theory is often being proposed on the basis of insufficient evidence as well. Mm -hmm. But the difference is it's being rationalized logically and the extent to which the theory is sound in terms of logical argument is what renders it a viable hypothesis, say, to where we say, okay, let's test it. So this is the distinction that I would ask people to make. Belief, th th these, th these are faith claims. You know, Robbie tells James something. James says, okay, Robbie, I trust you. What, what is James really saying by I trust you? He's saying, in actuality, I don't know whether you're going to do what you're going to do, so I'm going to go ahead and shut off my critical faculties and just tell you that I trust you as some you know, social mechanism of communication and, and so on. But we have to draw that distinction. So what I would encourage everyone to do would to, be, to ab abandon the very notion of how they utilize the word, not only to abandon the notion, abandon the use of the word. Abandon the use of the word belief. Abandon the use of the word faith. Ab abandon the use of the word trust in favor of thinking in terms of probabilities and likelihoods mm. on the basis of logical reasoning. Because the alternative, Robbie, is, you know, this is not my opinion. This is simply, this is the, this is the objective facts is that the, there's this important distinction to be made between conclusions that one draws as a result of nullifying their critical faculties and conclusions that one draws as a result of activating their critical faculties. This, this is sort of the bedrock from which we proceed from because on this topic of beliefs being challenged, there's nothing to challenge if you don't have any beliefs. 
Mm-hmm. So in a certain scientific context, for example, if we bring a particular argument, if in this scientific domain you have these scientific practitioners that have worked consciously to not operate on the basis of belief, but on the basis of probabilities and likelihoods due to logical reasoning and assumptions formed based upon those, then there's no platform, there's no possibility to offend sensibilities because sensibilities do not apply in that circumstance as a result of the conscious effort to mitigate emotional contribution to perception. Mm-hmm. It's a skill. It's not a natural thing to do. Yeah. The, na- the natural untrained thing to do is to overreact. So, so that's why people simply must be made aware of the fact that these overreactions that we see in a variety of professions, and in this case, sport coaches and athletes and in the middle of matches, these overreactions are indicators of an absence of self-regulatory skill and they're indicators of compromised decision-making. Yeah, yeah. I think you gave a good analogy too on Doug's podcast about how how that, like, this is a skill that can be managed in that you gave the example of, was it Ray Lewis? And you were saying, like, look, he gets all pent up, pent up, pent up, but then he, can, he has the control to be able to switch that off in play. So you were just using that example of, like, that this is a skill that can be trained in terms of, like I, I and I think you said this before on the on the the mental um, preparation podcast in uh, or the psychological preparation podcast in that uh, you were kind of saying you don't want to be misconstrued saying that like emotions like shouldn't happen you were like they do happen but it's it's the, it's the it's the ability to have a skill to be able to control those objectively that you wanted to get across. And I think he used Ray as an example of that, and that, like, you know, he could be all like, yeah, I think it was Ray Lucy, was there, but like, you were saying some very football players. I did. He was all like, yeah, and he's like, bravo, and he's like, just like, seems like an animal, completely out of control. But then, when it came down to a play or a group, he was able to completely control it, proving that it is a skill that can be controlled and, and that you can, you can like, utilize those emotions in a, in a good way rather than let, So basically, you're in charge of emotions rather than vice versa. There was a great, on this particular topic, just a great example that actually Doug forwarded me a link to. You you brought up the podcast I did with Doug, and I posted it on social media as an example of what I speak about in psychological preparation. So just seven days ago, there was a Southwest Airlines flight, 1380. I've seen Doug Doug put the link on that as well. yeah. Yeah. So there's audio. I would encourage anyone listening any listeners to Google Southwest 1380, there's a, you can go to YouTube and hear the audio of the pilot speaking with air traffic control. And the pilot is conveying what has happened, that an engine exploded, debris flew into the hull of the airplane, it tore a hole at a window, female was, who was sitting at the window was killed, she was half sucked out of the airplane, a couple nearby males grabbed her body to prevent her body from being sucked out of the airplane. So all this happened. And if you listen to the the pilot is a former naval 
fighter pilot, a woman, some 30-year military veteran who's now a commercial airline pilot. The tone of her voice, Robbie, is no different than mine is right now. Yeah. If if you didn't up up until the point where she's actually describing what happened, you you would approximate this to you know someone talking to you about anything that's just sort of mundane. There's just absolutely zero, no type of forensic examination of her voice would reveal in any way, I'm very confident in making this conjecture, would reveal any semblance of a psychological stress reaction. Absolutely zero. It reminds me of the NASA astronauts, and I encourage anyone to watch anything on the NASA astronauts. Uh, I, I can't, I don't know, it was on YouTube or Netflix I saw, but it was, it was probably some documentary in the Cold War and it got to like the, the space race. But it, like the amount of times that those astronauts were in space and like something went like really wrong and no one ever found out outside of like the guys at NASA because the astronauts were so trained. They were drilled over and over and over. And uh, it was something that me and Pat Davidson also spoke about in previous podcasts. And like, if you, if you speak to any good coach, they'll always talk, talk about, um, I say coach now and I'm getting conscious that I'm not putting a, a segregation up there, but I, you know, they always talk about uh, contingency plans and that like the, the really successful people in life always have contingency plans and have and are just always able to control their emotions and stay objective in, in high pressure situations. So, like there was times like Neil Armstrong when he was coming, it was before he went to the moon. He did like an orbit of the Earth. He was coming back in, and apparently, like whatever way he came back in was completely all wrong, and it was spinning out of control. And he nearly passed out, and like they were like only for he just stayed calm and knew the drill that he got back in. And then there was another one, I don't know the astronaut's name, but he basically did a spacewalk out of the space state, out of the spacecraft he was in, and he completely lost control, and like just like. You know, if that was any any of us, obviously like we weren't trained in it, but this guy was obviously trained. But like this guy was literally like, if he didn't do something quick, he was just gonna drift off into space, and he'd get he'd get control of the suit. And the the NASA people were like, okay, whatever his name is, just, uh, let pressure out of your glove and see if that can help decompress the pressure. And he just let pressure out. Eventually, got back in. It was just like you just think of those situations. They're like, it's it's unbelievable, like that that someone can control that. Well- in in and in the the more I'll keep coming back, Robbie, to a global perspective. One assumes. So think about what you just said. You, you said if you think about those situations, it's almost unbelievable that someone could have you know that level of composure. But that's only because what what your statement we can use that as an example my ref- of my, my argument, Robbie. My reference. I don't have a reference for that. Yet. Yeah, that's only your reference. Where whereas. Someone like myself, I've been thinking about these things for 20 years or so, and it's just all relative that, and this is what has to be gotten across because again, we come back to, we could give these examples. And as you'll see in the book, I, I speak about pilots, air traffic controllers, military special operators, trauma room surgeons, hedge fund managers, people who work in highly volatile situations in which the implications of a bad decision are highly consequential because mm. what it means is a patient is dying on the operating table, someone's getting killed in warfare, 
if I'm a pilot, I have all these lives that I'm a few hundred lives in the plane that I'm in charge of. If I'm a hedge fund manager, I'm dealing with seven figure financial trades and deals. There's serious implications that on the whole exceed those of any decisions made in sport as, as one example only, because yeah, yeah. You know, this is a sport related podcast. So we'll talk about sport. And so the, the thinking could be, okay, James, I get it. The trauma room surgeon, the Navy SEAL, the astronaut, the pilot, the air traffic controller, all these people, I get it. They have to be cool under pressure. But this is sport. And, you know, if I lose my temper as a sport coach, what's the big deal? Heck, it might even fire and motivate some of my players. No, no one's dying out on the hurling pitch. No, no one's, you know, this is, this is sport. The implications are, you know, they're, they're not anywhere near the same. This is a game. And, and what, what the miss is there, Robbie, the miss is that the level of focus in decision-making that is intrinsic to sport outcome. So whether that's tactical or technical execution, depending upon the sport in question, or coaching intervention, which again, depends upon the sport in question, because for example, intra-match coaching interventions are almost nil in terms of their relevance in association football, whereas in American football, they're utterly intrinsic to every single play. Mm-hmm. So the degree to which, for example, it, an association football coach could potentially be having an anxiety attack every game and the likelihood that that would impact an association football match is much smaller than if the American football coach is having an anxiety attack every game, particularly if, it, if that coach is a play caller. Because the association football coach is almost insignificant during the match. Mm. Apart from certain personnel decisions, the players are making their own tactical decisions. And this is true in, in many types of sports that are team sports. I'm just using association football as an example. Whereas American football, of course, players are making decisions for themselves, but the decisions are consistent in, in to a certain degree with the calls of the plays that are being made prior to every snap of the ball. So certain, the point here is certain sport competitions are more heavily implicated by the psychological disposition of the coaches than others based upon reasons that I have described. In no case, however, is it inconsequential. So it can only be a benefit to amass psychological skills, one of which is the ability to self-regulate emotion, that allows the apex of decision-making to shine through, Mm -hmm. particularly in moments of highest consequence. Mm -hmm. So this is not 
theory. This is objective facts. We know this. There is a level of emotional arousal that corresponds with, with optimal task performance. And we have to specify the nature of the task. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, it's, it's funny you mention that because I only just read that lady. Sorry to cut across. Um, it's actually in the, the, the Essences of Strength Training Conditioning book where they they talk about like it's a, it's a bell-shaped curve, like optimal levels of arousal. There's like too much though, anxiety. It, it's a decrement performance, too little, not enough. And there is this, this sweet spot, like this Goldilocks effect. And obviously, again, as long as you can transcend that emotion objectively, there's a benefit to it. It's in too often in many lines of dialogue, polarization occurs. So someone sees that and sees that a certain level of emotional arousal corresponds with optimal task performance. And the failure, this happens all the time with data, the failure of interpretation turns into, I want everyone to play with emotion. Mm. I mean, this is a, this is a, this is a, as, as misconceived as it is, this is a foundation of many sports. You know, coaches looking for players who are passionate. Mm-hmm. The, the, the definition of passion is barely controllable emotion. That's yeah. the definition. Of course we don't want that. We, <laughs> that's the last thing we want is barely controllable emotion because we don't even want emotion that's beyond the level of optimal performance state you know just it's so funny you mention that because straight straight or what immediately comes to my mind just from my hurling days from when i played hurling and when i started to study and investigate human behavior more and when i got more into coaching and then like you know the fact that again and we're talking about segregation but there shouldn't be segregation but when i was the physical preparation coach i know i know um but the fact that i played hurling meant that i i could also be the sports coach at the same time and when i had got more appreciation for again human behavior human development epigenetics and how environment shapes organism you know i I began to realize that everyone is the way they are for a reason and i completely understand why people can perceive the same environment differently you know given given their life experiences up to that point their reference points but the reason what the, the reason that that uh that what you're saying is really ringing true to me is because there was a lot of times we'd have team meetings and like one like one thing that used to like often be a divide in our team was and this isn't just my team, this is a lot of teams I've been involved in, so it's, I see this across multiple teams involved in not just GA but other sports, was that like you know you get this one guy who's passionate, he'd stand up and he'd go, you know, when I'm a trainer and, and I see lads and, and they don't get pissed off if they miss a ball, that pisses me off. And I was there trying to explain, yeah, but that's because that's your operating system of perceiving seeing reality. That's the way you deal with that particular moment. Just because you don't see someone else getting to the same levels of arousal or emotions, it doesn't mean that they don't care as much. It's just they don't express it through, through the same ways that Precisely. you do. And Precisely. And so it's 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 just knowing if if people if like the athletes within a team and even the managers knew that it would it would just like it, it would it would just be such a light bulb moment to them like because that is a massive. Um, issue among teams like, you, like at a subconscious level you'll get players going like they'll say I, I hate Mick he just it looks like he doesn't care training like I'm bursting my ass you know I'm carrying this team he like he you know I hate when I do drills with him because he never puts the effort in and it, it, that's their perception because he's not getting mad like it's a it's a absolutely valid point Robbie 
and this this speaks towards my argument of competency. Mm. This is something that those maybe from familiar anyone who's listened to the debate I had with psychologist Dan Abrams on the Just Kicking It podcast. We we had a debate, and what a large part of my argument is something that Dan was resistant to is the way that I use the word competent is specific to the criteria that I outline in the governing dynamics, which is to state that if one does not have a applied understanding of the governing dynamics, according to my argument, they are not competent. Now you just now, now clearly there's, there is plenty of coaches who, according to my argument, are not competent, yet they are successful coaches defined by how many championships their teams have, their teams have won. So we have to make the distinction there. I've already well explained, probably at this point ad nauseum, mm. why, you can be, why you can be misconceived as being competent having won for reasons in spite of and not because of. I, We've already I, gone through I, I think I think just the digression. I think a, a whole episode so that we so that forever me and you have like just listened to this for that reason. So I think one an next uh, our, our next episode in terms of title wise should be experience versus expertise, and we can always then point people to that like just link that and that's that taken care of. Sure. You, it's the the point that you raise is so valid, Robbie, because you talk about. You said, if only coaches, if only physios, if only so-and-so had knowledge of how perceptions differ based upon this multivariate process of life experience and cultural influences, et cetera. The fact that that is not ground level education. Unbelievable. Yeah, exactly. It's astonishing. We, We can go down the list of what's astonishing that's not foundational level knowledge knowledge of anyone. I don't care whether you're coaching 10 year old athletes in hurling or the national rugby team of Ireland. It should be foundational for anyone who interacts with an athlete. My argument extends much broadly, of course, in the psychological reference frame of any human. Yeah. I was, I was just going to say any human too, straight away there. But the, the the reason for me why like, uh, like what you're saying there is like so golden, it's so spot on. Is that like there was a stage in my life, like I'm 30 now, like I only really started to appreciate again, like like I always just go back to, when I when I discovered epigenetics, like when I read Bruce Lipton's book Biology Relief and I and that and came across Jock Fresco's work. So Bruce Lipton, Jock Fresco, and Joseph Pierce were the three people who like drilled into my head or, or got the message across that like the environment and the organism interact together to dictate an organism's expression. And it was just like, and it was that light bulb moment, and they were just like, everyone and everything is the way they are for a reason. Like, the environment dictates an organism's expression. Now, I, I will put the caveat that I know you're thinking, and and the, the, the big difference, though, between us humans and other organisms is that we can choose to perceive our environment. So that's a key thing as well. But like when I yes, when, when when I understood those those principles, like it was like life changing. Like it like profoundly changed my understanding of reality. And then I'm just like I was trying to go around trying to tell this everyone like you need to know this. Like this will change your life if you understand these principles. Well, and it it just it just points towards 
failures in education generally that the, the degree to which a concept such as that and how psychological skills, this is a mutable thing, you can develop these, you can change behavior, you can change impulses. The, the truth of all these, the fact that this is not Ground disseminate, level. Yeah, yeah that, that it's not disseminated to where if you think of the developing mind in the degree to which a young person can assimilate various subject matter, there's no reason why almost any concept, as sophisticated as it may be, cannot be disseminated to the extent that it can be introduced at a very early level. Mm. And the more deeply someone understands the subject matter, the greater their ability to explain it in such a way in more in more simple terms. Obviously, there's only so far you can simplify something before it ceases to be the thing that you began talking about. But one of the failures in education is that there's much too much a restriction on the sophistication and just even more generally the type of subject matter that's introduced to young people on the basis of what I would argue is outdated stereotypes substantiated on chronological age. It's the reason why, whether it's you know primary school in your part of the world or elementary school in my part of the world, it's the reason why you have fairly standardized curriculums according to grade levels which correspond to chronological age levels. Mm. Very flawed, stereotypical thinking yeah. granted they're attempting to accommodate population level scales however we know even the diversity of intellectual aptitudes and intelligence generally that starts from day one and is and is evident even in in preschool stages and so it it it's really confounding that this knowledge of what you explain the interaction and how perceptions developed as a result of, you know, quite literally genetic ancestry and information passed along at the level of the DNA that's therefore coupled with the environment with mm -hmm. one interacts and all possible types of cultural interventions that occur once we are in the world. The fact that that type of knowledge and the knowledge that there is no compulsory reason to have a psychological stress reaction. There, there's, there's nothing that says that it's an unavoidable law of nature to have a psychological stress reaction when, and then we fill in the blank of the common misconceptions that people assign the word psychological stress to the fact that this is not earliest stage education is astonishing. And it's it's because of how these subject matter truths are implicated in the life experience of absolutely everyone. When I was teaching at the personal training college I used to teach at, so I taught there for 18 months, the very first lecture I gave was on epigenetics and how environments shape organisms and trying to get people to understand everyone and, every, everyone and everything is way there for a reason. Because to me, it was just like, it was so, and I, I'd always be asking the, the students who are going to become personal trainers in four weeks, and I would say, like, why do you think I, I'm trying to, why do you think we open up with this lecture? 
and like like and then I'd say to them, who are you going to be training and they'd be like you know people and I was like yeah but who are you training and then like someone would say human beings I was like yes and this is critical to know if you want to get any sort of relationship or or get get your clients the results you want to get because at a deeper fundamental level it goes well deeper beyond sets and reps and just want to lose fat or lose weight it's it goes way deeper than that well and again even even more broadly if you say if you ask the average 12 year old the average 12 year old female ask her what would her thoughts be if someone came into her school with a machine gun and killed 30 pe- students and teachers what does she think about that what what you're likely to get is words that include I'd be scared. I'd, I'd be freaked out. I, I'd it'd be this terrible, you know, something along those those lines. Now, if the simple truth of the matter was introduced as in the form of lessons in classes, starting in first grade, you know, the the age of six and seven and eight and nine, et cetera. It would be just as plausible for this average 12-year-old girl, her reaction to whether it actually, because this is uh, world news, you're probably familiar, this tends to, this has happened more frequently than we'd like in America with these school shootings. Mm-hmm. It's very plausible that you could have a 12-year-old girl react to this simply as, well, it's a set of what's possible. Instead of scared, freaked out, I was running, I was crying, I was upset, you could have this 12-year-old saying, it's a very unfortunate thing. It falls into the set of possibilities. I'm, I'm sad for the friends and family of the people who are lost, but it's simply one of the set of possibilities. Mm. And see, the fact, that, that, the fact that people have no reference for that, they think that would just be ridiculous. You know what I mean? They're like, no way could she respond like that. And it's, and it's, as you said, that lack of reference is a lack of knowledge. Yeah. And if only it was as ubiquitous in early stage education and parenting competency to have this knowledge, then that type of scenario, that type of explanation of what could be just as probable would be just as mundane and logical as how the sort of the unknowing audience's reaction would be to me saying, guess what? You could ask the average 12 year old girl what two plus two is. And she'd say four And the average listener saying, uh-huh, uh, yeah, of course, because you've already learned basic arithmetic by mm. the age of 12. Mm. Similarly had this, if this type of knowledge of the objective truths of things that we, we do have dominion on how we perceive and react to the environment on the basis of psychological skills training. Yes. And that is why it could be just as ordinary for a 12 year old person to render such a, a, such a more efficient and ultimately objectively true response to how they would respond to a potentially existential crisis. Mm. It's simply a, a difference in knowledge. Yeah. Just something I wanted to uh, to touch on there. Um, we'll, we'll wrap up soon here. I was going to say something there now. It's, it's get my mind. It'll come back to my mind in a second. But something else I want to say. Going back to the governing dynamics, 
Um, and, you know, we were talking about doctors and lawyers and, you know, they're having this more sort of, you know, um, unified foundation to their education. Like, have you ever thought of putting together basically like a sports preparation university, like some online sort of education system? Because I'm sure like that there is people out there who would absolutely like would just love that. You know what I mean? Well, like, so I, basically, like, the government dynamics would be the textbook, and it's basically the online version of the of the government dynamics. I have thought about it. The the one of the reasons I wrote the book was to, as I stated earlier, to facilitate the inspiration at the university level. I've actually had a couple people who teach courses at university that have indicated to me that they're using the book for their for that purpose as as to an an online version i have not i have not i have not furthered that thought very much but i but i have i have generally given given thought to that concept for you know reasons that should be obvious to anyone listening on the basis of what we're Mm. talking about i remember i was going to say so just going back to that 12 year old girl and, and like if she had that very rational, objective response to a, a killing in her school, like since again, since my own evolution as a person, and again, sort of what we already touched on with this podcast, like when I was younger, I w- if you told me somebody had died, I'd be like, oh, it's terrible news. Whereas like nowadays, I'm like, that's not my reaction at all, because I've got such a different perception of death now, because I have a different reference point to it. Like you also hear people saying, "Oh, like they died. That's terrible news." And like I, like it always makes you in, in, immediately think, like, why? Why is that bad? Like, why is why 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 do you perceive death to be bad? Like, like we're conditioned to be like death is terrible. It's, again, it goes back to this. I've spoken about this lots of it. It goes back to this uncertainty thing, and people don't like uncertainty. And then we've been conditioned that oh, death's uncertain, so then people have a fear of it. So their fear is seen as a negative thing. Whereas like. It, again, if you were conditioned from day one that listen, life is beautiful, but we wouldn't know life without death, and death's something to be afraid of. It's gonna to come to us all, and you know, if if that was like your, if you were objectively rational with that, you'd never be someone that going on oh, like, you know, it's terrible that the person died, or and you're just like, you know, you you it, it, like it. Basically, what I'm saying is that like, that's just not my view on death anymore. I don't see death as terrible. It's just a process of life. It's going to happen. You wouldn't know life without right or day without night. So you wouldn't know life without death. So it's it's inevitable. Whether someone passes away at 14 years of age, four years of age, 94 years of age, it's it's gonna it's happened through all time. It will continue to happen. And I get like death is something that we are all going to eventually meet, and it's kind of getting to a place of acceptance of it. And then another example is too here in Ireland where it rains, Jane. James, everyone's reaction is, oh, you know, rain, and then they complain, complain, complain. It's like, but if you were conditioned from like the very first day you were alive, rain is unreal. It's great crack. We go out, we go in puddles. Like, if that was what you were told from your environment, you'd be like, I don't get why people hate rain. It's amazing. Why, why don't they, you know? So just, it's just, just going back. Just got, and the reason I use those examples is because people could listen and go, ah, listen, that's a bit extreme using a 12 year old girl and shootings. I'm like, it's not, though. Oh, you you bring up, you bring up good points, Robbie. The weather is actually something that I've talked about a lot because I've I've lived in a lot of different places, a few different countries, and I've lived all over the U.S. and it it's always something that I've noticed in the the local cultures of where I've lived. 
the degree to which the weather impacts the psychology of the local population has really been interesting to me because I grew up in the state of Michigan, which has pretty extreme weather in each season of the year. So there's a lot of snow and very low sub-freezing temperatures in the in the winter, and there's a lot of overcast and rain in you know spring and fall times, and it's hot, humid summers. So it's it's fairly fairly extreme in, in that part of the United States in terms of each season. And so growing up, all, all that I knew was, okay, the, the summer is hot and humid and the winter is freezing with lots of snow and there's lots of rain and overcast and this is just the weather, no problem. It, uh, the only thing it should really influence is what you wear when you're out in it. And it, what I've you know, just having lived, lived all over the place, it, it's really been interesting to me to see how people's worldviews are implicated by the climate. Mm. And it's interesting that you would discuss, because as we know, just sort of the United Kingdom in general, there's, there's fairly, there's, there's a, there's a fair amount of overcast. There's a fair amount of rain in many parts of, of the UK in general. And it's interesting that there would people there would be people who who are from there and live there that would be complaining about it because that that's what I associate people who live in areas of you know southern Spain and Portugal and France and Italy and the southwest and the southeast of the U.S. In which case there's much greater percentage of sun and higher temperatures. And these are the people who tend to complain more about whether it's not a sunny day. So that's interesting that you would describe many, many Irish people who would complain because when you come from an environment, you usually, you typically inoculate as a result of the exposure. But it's, uh, the point is it's, it's something that's outside of one's control and therefore it's, it's, it's interesting. Like so many of the other things that people wrap themselves up in on the news and re- and react to in inefficient manners that are outside of their ability to d- directly impact and are and are and are therefore on the should be on the short list to eliminate from consciousness simply on the basis of the fact that you have no ability to impact it. Yeah, in, in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey has like the circles of influence, and he was basically like, uh, I haven't read the book in a while. And if you go to Google Images, you'll be able to pull it up. But basically, he was just like. He was like, he it was like a circle, and he was just like there. I can't remember if it was two circles, like, or was it just one? But basically, the premise was like there. There was just like certain things you can control and certain things you can't control, and like he was like, yeah, it was two circles of influence. Then, and in one circle of influence it was like one things that you can't control, and he's like, there's no point worrying about. It. Like so, like he was like, the weather was one, and like uh, politics and all that stuff, and he's like, he was he was talking about the difference between pro. Oh, this is what it was. He was talking about the difference between proactive people versus reactive people. And he showed the reactive person's circle of influence. And he's saying reactive people let circumstances dictate their mood. So again, like the weather, uh, the economy, you know, stuff completely out of their control. And he says they just react to that. Whereas a proactive person realizes that I can't control that. I control my perceptions to it. But I'm going to focus on things that I actually have control over, like my mindset, like my own finances, like my own health and wellness, like stuff like that. So he was just showing the difference between proactive and reactive people. So... Yeah, it just it reminds you of that too, but uh, like it's so funny because my, my thing lately is like every time someone complains about the rain here in Ireland, they're like, 
oh, terrible day out there. I'm like, beats having cancer. And straight, <laughs> and straight away, they're kind of like, yeah, I can't really argue with that. And I was like, yeah, I think I, I think I, if I had, I was like, if I had a choice between rainy day and Mr. Burke, you've got six weeks to do stage four pancreatic cancer. I'm going with the rainy day, I think. So, I, I actually prefer overcast rainy weather. And it's funny because I'm in a minority and elevator conversation, as you're probably familiar with, almost always regards weather. And so uh, multiple times a week, I'll be in an elevator with people and they'll be talking about how, you know, what a nice day it is because the sun is shining and, take, and then over take, and over. Take the stairs, man. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, well, well, well said. So, so often I'm saying, actually, I'm part of that minority that enjoys gray overcast. Well, I remember when you were over here giving your lecture in uh, 2012. And uh, you were talking about we'd gone around Europe, and you were just like, I love the medieval buildings. I just this one, and I was just like, just, you're you're just you're Batman. You just love the darkness. It's true. All right, so listen, uh, we'd be oh, it was almost two hours gone. What goes on? It's just, I have to say, I thought our last podcast was one of my favorites. This one was just just for the listeners. This is meant to be about military operations preparation. Or, or physical preparation for, for military operations and for the military, but uh, it ended up being something even better. I'm gonna actually have to listen back now and like come up with a title for this. I think I think we'll call it segregation, uh, overcoming segregation in, in in sports preparation. That might be might be good, but uh, fantastic topics and like just so many great takeaways. So thanks a million for taking the time today, James. And obviously, we'll say our good looks offline. So is there anything else? So I know you're saying you talk about the upcoming. Um, Seminar with Raymond, uh, Govern Dynamics, the book, all that stuff will always, of course, be linked up the show notes. The website's still going well. Maybe if we can get enough people to annoy James about maybe doing like a Govern Dynamics University, we might get that going maybe in the next year or something. <laughs> that would be great. Is there any other projects coming up? Is there a potentially another book on the way? Was there? Or? I have started writing one, but there's no I'm – I'm in no particular – I've set no deadline. Cool. But but I but I have started writing one. We'll see we'll see what happens with that. Cool, great. All right, so for everyone listening, thanks for listening. And as I always say at the end of every show, I'll talk to everyone soon. Take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.